Good morning, everybody. You're listening to Green Left Radio, and you've got uh, me, Chloe, uh, as one of your presenters today. And you've got myself, Jacob. So, good morning, everyone. Um, I would like to just start off by acknowledging that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. We like to acknowledge that this always was, um, always will be, Aboriginal land, and that sovereignty was never ceded. Okay, so for our program today, um, we have um, we're, we're going to be covering quite a bit about um, what's currently happening in um, Ukraine, uh, simply because it is, you know, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia is obviously is in, you know an act that has to be condemned and it is obviously being condemned by the world all over. But we wanted to sort of unpack and kind of give a bit, you know, give a kind of alternative kind of left-wing kind of perspective, I guess, on some of these events, because really the kind of corporate sort of dominant line really doesn't, isn't necessarily putting forward, uh, you know, a political message that actually contributes towards peace um, and, and, and solidarity. Because really at the end of the day, while, you know, the uh, the United States, you know, is very quick, is being very quick to condemn Russia's kind of actions, it is not w- willing to acknowledge, you know, its role in terms of, like, you know, other wars and occupations, including Afghanistan and Iraq. And so, you know, that hypocrisy, I think, is quite striking. Yeah, so for our program today, um, we're going to sort of cover some of that aspects. And I thought maybe we could start off the program, actually... By because Green Left had had actually have has actually organised um actually organised a forum last night on this whole um whole kind of issue, I thought we'd play a recording from one of the talks straight up for our program, um just to kind of set the kind of scene. Um, this was a public forum organised by Green Left titled "Behind Russia's Attack on Ukraine," and the first speaker who is um who spoke at this was um William Briggs, and I'll and I'll start off by um, playing. The introduction, um, which was um, which was the which was shared by Green Left International Editors um, Susan Price. Okay. Anyway, I'll just play a quick announcement, and then we'll go on to playing that. You're listening to Green Left Radio. You know, there's people like you said have been on casual for seven years. Well, it's supposed to be casual employment. People want full time jobs. They don't want to be sitting there casual, not knowing they're going to get any any days, any leave, or what's whatsoever. Especially you look at all the casuals in the, our industry at the moment. They're sitting home. You know, people want full time employment, and they should they should be entitled to full time right. employment. And look at all the people who were used and abused as casuals in the aged care sector, and all the problems that are facing people now, and all the deaths that are following. In the meatworks, a lot of that's casuals, labour hire, you know, we've got blokes travelling around, you know. We want full-time positions and, you know, that's 
And people want it. We want to be full-time employed. You want to have your Christmas holidays. You want to have time with your family. But when you're a casual, you get none of that. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and as I stated at the beginning of the program, we'll get it. We'll get to start off the program by playing a pre-recording of this public forum that was actually organised by Green Left um, last night, titled "Behind Russia's Attack on Ukraine," having a bit of a, an important kind of discussion on how the left should, um, how the left can respond to um, Russia's invasion. And also um, how we can build an effective kind of anti-war movement while also putting forward an important message of being opposed to all forms of militarism and empire. And the, I'll start playing it um, now. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Uh, my name is Susan Price and I'll be chairing the forum tonight. Before we begin, uh, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you from Baramatagal land, uh, land of the Darug people. Uh, this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Uh, I'd like to pay respects to elders past, present and emerging and also pay respect to any First Nations uh, people, uh, comrades joining us tonight for this forum. Uh, well, thanks. Thanks, everyone, for being here tonight. Uh, we've organised this forum in response to the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Uh, and certainly the invasion is drawing condemnation uh, the world over and calls are mounting for on Russia to immediately withdraw uh, its troops from Ukraine and for all parties to return to talks, to de-escalate and work towards resolving uh, this crisis. But I think it's fair to say that this conflict can't really be properly understood without examining um, the relentless drive by the United States and its Western allies to expand NATO uh, up to Russia's border and encircle it militarily. And tonight's discussion will uh, cover some of this ground uh, and also seek to answer the question as to how we can develop a united left response to these events and contribute towards building an anti-war movement that can oppose the war in Ukraine and militarism in all its forms, including that of the United States, its Western allies, whose actions, I think it's fair to say, have only escalated uh, conflict in the region. So we're very pleased to have two speakers with us tonight, uh, William Briggs. Uh, William is a political economist and he is a, a Green Left contributor uh, William has consistently written uh, coverage uh, in Green Left on this conflict, so looking forward to hearing from William. And then we will hear from Sam Wainwright. Uh, Sam uh, is normally based in uh, uh, Noongar country in Fremantle, but is joining us tonight from Canberra. And Sam is one of the Socialist Alliance national co-conveners. So uh, thank you. Thanks to both of you for taking the time tonight. And uh, each of the speakers will have about 20 minutes to uh, speak and then we'll open the meeting up to questions and discussion. We are live streaming this event from YouTube. 
just to let everyone know, but we will stop recording during the discussion. Um, so without further delay, uh, I'd like to welcome William Briggs and hand it over to you. Thanks, William. Thank you very much. I would uh, just first of all like to acknowledge that uh, I'm speaking on the land of the Wadawurrung people of the Kulin Nation, where sovereignty has never been ceded. Right, the fact that we are here having this forum is of itself a terrible thing. And it begs the question, how do we get here? What is going on? And what can we do about it? Now, Marx once famously said that philosophers have hitherto only interpreted the world in various ways. And the point, of course, is to change it. What is happening in Ukraine needs to be interpreted. The forces in play need to be understood and their actions analysed. Russia, of course, must stand condemned for its actions. But ultimately, it is the USA and imperialism that remains the real enemy for us all. First, we need to interpret and then to change things. But that very first step is to understand why things are unfolding in this terrible way. Because if we were just to base our understanding of events on the hyperbole of the mass media, we might well be forgiven for just thinking that Putin woke up one morning crabby, possibly hung over and said, I'll think I'll send the tanks in. Because our media ultimately leaves us feeling that history just began with this morning's newspaper. Or we might see Putin acting in a way to restore the Soviet Union, albeit a Soviet Union that has no pretense of supporting the working class that actually built the thing in the first place. We may be told many things, but what we won't see is any serious attempt at analysis. And why? Because the media is an arm of the state and has a job to do. And in moments of extreme crisis, it plays a crucial role in supporting the state and, by definition, capitalism. But even so, the level of pro-war propaganda being poured out is extreme. And it has the unashamed intent of convincing the public if the crisis gets sharp enough, war is almost inevitable. There are some absolutes in all this, what is going on, and the Russian invasion cannot, under any circumstances, be accepted, even if it could and might be explained. Now, that's clear. It's also clear that the current Ukrainian government is in large part a product of imperialist intrigue. The $5 billion that went into funding the anti-government forces in Ukraine in 2013-2014 was, for the US, money well spent. And the other thing that ought to be clear is that the US and US imperialism has been able magnificently to manoeuvre things in such a way as to appear to be the good guy in all of this. Now, I once knew someone who, whenever asked a question remotely to do with politics, would look off into the middle distance contemplate and then sagely reply, it's all to do with imperialism. He was generally wrong, but this time, had he been asked, well, I think we know the answer. And finding the right starting point on a timeline for this crisis shouldn't be that difficult. And it goes much further back than the debacle of 2013-2014 and the installation of the Western pro-Western government in Ukraine. 
significant moment, of course, is the collapse of the Soviet Union, but we need to go back a fair way earlier than that. And that moment in time was when NATO was formed in 1949, ostensibly to act as a security blanket against possible Soviet expansion. And then, just six years later, when that MIRA organisation, the Warsaw Treaty Organisation, was formed to act as a security blanket against NATO aggression. Now, the Warsaw Treaty was, of course, dissolved in 1991 as the Soviet Union was getting its affairs in order. NATO, on the other hand, did not. It never went away and just got stronger. Socialism went away and NATO, to fight socialism, stayed. The Soviet Union became Russia. Russia became capitalist. And yet NATO became stronger. Now, Russia was never meant to be an enemy, but the US seemed to be just making sure, just in case. And Russia, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, was seen as a potential El Dorado for capitalism. Vast resources appeared to be just there for the taking. And the best case picture for the US was to have Russia as a virtual reservoir and quarry. It's crudely put, but that's the way they were seeing things. In much the same way that China, after it opened up to the West, was to become one huge workshop. It was for the US to be hegemon heaven. But, of course, things don't always work out according to the script. China just didn't cooperate in the end, became fully capitalist system, and is now set to eclipse the USA as global capitalist power. And things went fairly awry in Russia as well. Putin, his nationalist and authoritarian regime, arrived, and Russia quickly became that threat to the advance of America's vision. Consequently, NATO began its eastward march. The former Soviet territories became NATO's borders with Russia, and that familiar encirclement and militarization of the region ensued. The establishment of a pro-Western government in Ukraine was just the next inevitable step in a campaign aimed at weakening Russia. And in the lead-up to this conflict, this war, Russia made two fairly simple demands. One, that NATO forces would would withdraw to the 1997 borders and that Ukraine would not become part of NATO. Now, this was not some bullying stance against a sovereign state, but it was simply a way of reminding the world of a deal that had been stitched up between the Soviet Union when it was crumbling and the United States. James Baker, we all know the Secretary of State in the Bush Senior Administration, fixed the deal with Gorbachev. East Germany would become okay for NATO, but that now famous not one inch eastwards slogan became, for a little while, a fact. But today, just about all former Soviet allies are part of that NATO alliance. And we've got to remember that the USA currently has more than 750 military bases in 80 countries. Russia is ringed by these bases and is China. By contrast, China has just four bases outside its territory and Russia has 10 
although seven of these are in former Soviet republics. But even so, the Russian invasion had a certain sense of inevitability about it. As the Putin regime gathered strength, there was a renewed call to patriotism, nationalism and symbols of past glories. All states, if they are to survive, need to build a sense of legitimacy around them. We give you the right to govern us, and you offer us something tangible in return. A social contract was entered into. In the case of Russia, Putin maintained legitimacy by use of the symbolism, both Tsardom and Stalinism. Russia was great, Russia is great, Russia will be great. And it was a heady mix for a people who felt seriously let down and humiliated by the loss of power and prestige after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And when the carpetbaggers arrived, when the oligarchs crept up out of the mire, when life expectancy plunged and when poverty just stalked the country. And for Putin, foreign policy is inevitably so closely tied to domestic policy. While his foreign policy might be questioned and is certainly questionable, it makes sense from the point of view of trying to maintain credibility and legitimacy at home. Whereas the US interprets foreign policy in a very way that is very different, not just different to Russia, but to everywhere else on earth. It began its rise when imperialism was at its peak and it learned how to play the game. Its foreign policy, naturally enough, includes political, diplomatic, economic elements, as do all states. There's nothing strange there. But force projection and military power has always been central to all American strategic thinking. The issue of the bases is just a case in point. The most recent figures point to an annual military global budget of more than $1.8 trillion, with the US making up about half of that that amount. And it is constantly pressuring its allies to up the spending rate. And most disturbingly, just the other day, Germany declared that its percentage of GDP for the military was going to bump from 1.4 to over 2% of its GDP. It changes the whole nature of Europe. And in 2019, we've got to remember that the US scrapped its intermediate-range nuclear forces treaty, the INF treaty, the treaty that limited short- and medium-range weaponry between Russia and, and the United States. And at the moment that it broke that, that deal, it began production of new, low-yield nuclear warheads for its Trident missiles. The weapons are shamelessly referred to as usable nuclear weapons, and they are now in place. And the militarization of the globe, there's so much part of US foreign policy, didn't just happen of itself. There's been a constant and all-pervasive theme in US policy that has been that of dominating global order. Now, there have been moments when these tactics have changed and the doctrine has been presented in different forms. We've just had a quarter of a century of a war on terror. It was a military doctrine that focused less on global relations but still ended up with 360,000 civilian deaths. But then America's military doctrine shifted back to one that was concerned more directly on the core business of global power. 
And in 2018, the US adopted what it described as a national defence strategy, and it's been improving upon that ever since. Its aim is to ensure that America remains the preeminent military power in the world. That's a quote from the document. As well as ensuring that, quote, the balance of power remains in our favour. It also declares that it aims to advance an international order that is most conducive to our security and prosperity and preserve access to markets. I repeat, access to markets. They're quite open. And one of the chief architects of this new doctrine is one Eldridge Colby. Now, he recently bobbed up again in our region with a focusing particularly on China. It was at the time of the Quad meeting in Melbourne when he let it be known that the US was having serious trouble selling the idea of a war with Russia to its own people and that only 13% of Americans considered it a particularly good idea to go to war with Russia. And he made the point that is so often kept from our gaze that war and the preparations for war can be calculated in terms of economic gain and loss. And then just three years ago, soon after, three years after the defence policy was put in place, Colby published what is an astonishing article in the US Foreign Affairs magazine. Now, the magazine had devoted an entire issue to the issues of nuclear conflict. And Colby's article was called, If You Want Peace, Prepare for Nuclear War, a strategy for the new great power rivalry. That would have been nice to think that he was offering us a warning to pull back from the abyss, but that was never his intent. The article appeared just days before the US announced that it would be withdrawing from the INF Treaty. And there are some specific, some significant dates in all of this. 2014, just months after the events in Ukraine that brought the right-wing nationalist pro-US government to power, the US announced its trillion-dollar overhaul of nuclear weapons systems to take 10 years. Other powers, Russia, regarded these, with, these decisions with a little bit of trepidation. But the threat of war, be it in Asia or Europe, moved a significant step closer in 2018 when the USA quietly announced its new military strategy. To, to great power competition. Now, US strategic thinking in Europe, and especially in relation to Russia and Ukraine, is transparent and is linked to maintaining power, economic, political and military. A weak Russia obviously means a stronger America. There has been a clear policy of shrinking the territory that had once been the USSR and drawing former allies into the orbit of NATO. The history of Russia, both Soviet and post-Soviet, has been a history of overt expressions of nationalism. It has a view of itself as a great power and deserving of great power status. And in this, it's not particularly different to that of the United States. But its recent history of Russian-Ukrainian relations certainly reflect Russia's nationalist agenda and a need to remain a prominent global force for good or ill. And Russia sees itself threatened by Western encroachments, and rightly so. It's ringed by NATO bases. US, Canadian, UK, German forces all share the load of battle groups in the Black Sea. And bases are now close to the Russian border in Poland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. 
There are currently over 70,000 US troops in Europe. And before the invasion, the US was active in Ukraine, training Ukrainian forces. And now we have the invasion. While motivations might be able to be accepted, the act is and remains reprehensible. Whatever happens in the immediate future, time alone can tell. Whether US-inspired sanctions will affect the Russian economy to the extent that it may have to reconsider its actions are unknown, unknowable. There has, of course, been a run on the Russian banks, the stock market is in tatters, and an already weak economy is certainly suffering. The future of gas sales, however, remains uncertain because capitalism has to keep on ticking over. Whether the invasion will end in Russia securing its much-desired buffer zone against further NATO encroachment is again unknowable. What the fate will be for Ukraine, either as a unified state or a fragmented one, is also impossible to forecast. What then would be the domestic ramifications for Putin if he is not successful? How repressive would Russia become if legitimacy was stripped away? If he is successful, then what does he do with a hostile, occupied territory and one that is consistently supported by the West? How does he respond to a future with Russia marked out as a pariah state? All of this obviously remains uncertain. There's only one thing that is clear, and that is the role that US imperialism has been playing. Now, it's something of a cliche to say that in war there are no winners, except in this case it would appear that imperialism is that winner. And that is why, regardless of the wrongs of Russia, and they are legion, this conflict, the blame must be laid squarely at the feet of the real criminals. And we know who they are. As my old friend would have said, it's all about imperialism. And thank you. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people, and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to Green Left Radio, and you're just listening to a talk by William Briggs, um, who is a political economist and has been a regular contributor to Green Left on issues around Russia and Ukraine, which he was speaking um, about um, as part of a public forum that took place last night titled Behind um, Russia's in, um, Attack on Ukraine which was a public forum organised by Green Left in response to uh, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. 
And I thought we would also use a bit of a kind, um, for us um, in terms of the presenters, I thought we'd use a bit of an opportunity to kind of discuss and unpack some of the kind of coverage on this war. Um, because I guess as I sort of started um, with at the beginning of the program, there is a lot of um, hypocrisy coming from uh, coming from the media, mm. especially in terms of which voices uh, that are being prioritised in this in in this entire war, but also the fact how the issue is more more importantly how the issue is being framed. Because put it this way. When it ca- when it came um, when it comes this 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 um, invasion of Ukraine by Russia you know has to be condemned you know there's mm-hmm. no, there's no defence of this um, while there are probably some sections of left wing opinion that might be trying to pose some justification or explanation for it I think it's very clear there is absolutely no justification for what Russia is doing in Ukraine right now it is an outright invasion and I think Ukraine people. Uh, whose country has been raided have you know have a right to defend themselves, but there is a, obviously a problem, and I think when you look at the media sort of coverage, it is obviously it's all in it's all it's in some sense condemning the invasion. It's full on. Mm. This is the kind of one of the few sort of in, um, military sort of invasions that has actually been conveniently condemned by the whole world, and that is because of Russia's role within the world capitalist system. You know, Russia is a capitalist country, but of course it is seen as an enemy of the dominant Western powers, i.e. the United States, um, the United Kingdom, uh, Australia, etc. And, of course, our media is obviously pro-imperialist, sort of you know, pro-Western. And so, of course, it will be, um, be giving, you know, a side that condemns kind of Russia. But, of course, it's also... There's also a lot of other elements that's sort of creeping in. And maybe, Chloe, mm. you want to sort of start off by oh. talking about the sort of you know, the kind of racism that's in kind of inherent in the media coverage and especially around the treatment of refugees. Yeah, I mean, we can see, like, a lot of white supremacy coming out through, um, you know, in the in the Western media and it is it is very dehumanising for people who have been affected by wars in Afghanistan and, um, you know, countries like Iraq. And, you know, it, it, it would be hard to tune out the racist biases in, in Western media and, and in politics um, you know, where there's like a tends to be a spreading of hate and nationalism, which war promotes. Um, and then there's this racist subtext that Afghans and um, Iraqi and Syrian lives don't matter because, you know, they or their culture is considered or put, portrayed as inferior or uncivilized um, by um, some of the Western um, media outlets. And, and it's disturbing. And I'm, I'm glad that lots of people on social media have been quick to point out the hypocrisy um, that is prevalent in, in Western journalism. Um, sometimes, you know, they've been normalizing wars, um, you know, um, in places like the Middle East, Africa, South Africa, and Latin America, and then condemning wars that take place in, in Europe, which, you know, we also condemn. We condemn all wars. But, you know, what was that <laughs> telegraph journalist, Daniel Hannan saying, um, you know, where people watch, um, you know, condemning a war where people watch Netflix. I mean, what an absurd, uh, what an uh, 
absurd comment. Um, it well, almost, let me read out the exact quote because yeah, I, think it it is, I think it's quite uh, – this is kind of like a classic kind of example <laughs> of how racist the coverage is. Mm. And this was, um, so, this was a journalist who wrote in The Telegraph, uh, I think The Daily Telegraph, which is a very right-wing Murdoch-owned mm. sort of media outlet. And commenting on, I guess, on this conflict, they they wrote – they seem so like us. That's what makes it so shocking. Ukraine is a European country. Its people watch Netflix and have Instagram accounts, vote in free elections and read uncensored newspapers. And now this is the worst um, point. War is no longer something visited upon impoverished in remote populations. And I think that is just a classic kind of example of the, yeah. the sort of blatant sort of racism of our media. Yeah, and it, it does it contributes to a lot of um, racism we see towards black and brown refugees. Um, there's a lot of because of that, there's a lot of fear mongering, and you know them even being blamed for trying to flee their own to, to flee their countries and on boats when when wars break out. And this can contribute to the politics of how refugees are treated. Um, you know, and then we can see um, uh, you know in neighboring countries um, of of Ukraine like Poland and Austria. They're now opening their doors and welcoming refugees from U- Ukraine, um, which they should. Um, but they've also been demonizing and abusing refugees for years, especially from Muslim and African backgrounds. Well, I, I think one thing to add, Chloe, mm. um, in terms of like the question of accepting refugees from um, from Ukraine and mm. um, who have been, there are actually reports of people trying um, people of color who are of you know, of African backgrounds, but, yeah. you know, happen to live in um, Ukraine, uh, you know, trying to seek asylum and then being refused entry on the border in favour of what more white-looking uh, Ukrainians. Yeah. Um, uh, in, and, you know, that's just a classic kind of example of the kind of racism. And I guess another kind of important point is the Australian government, like going back to the question about the Australian government, mm-hmm. the Australian government has, you know, Offered, you know, all this humanitarian assistance to yeah. Ukrainians fear, um, fearing um, fleeing conflict, and well, you know, that's all that's all good, you know. But what is what has been the Australian government's track record uh, for like the past several years as we've been as we've been speaking out for the better part of the decade and on our program, like it's you know the, the Australian government's uh, refugee policies are actually just abhorrent. So there's a clearly a blatant blatant hypocrisy from the um, from our government you know but it also shows i think it also shows there's a few things that this um this shows it shows that because basically capitalist politicians will always go on about things like you know for example on the question of refugees they'll they'll make an argument to say you know we can't we can't open our immigrate system too much if we let too many people in you know it's going to overload the economy and overpopulate or whatever that whatever um crap argument that is used to kind of justify it. But, you know, when you look at this kind of situation, it actually shows that that's actually quite illusionary. It's Mm. actually, you know, our government, uh, our system is actually capable of doing a lot of things that uh, the capitalist system considers impossible. And, in fact, actually might bring up a bit of a random kind of example, but in uh in 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 Britain there was a there was an article that kind of reported that um they are actually trying to seize uh the property of 
of of Russian oligarchs, i.e. capitalists, um, but they use the term oligarchs in this context because that, that's the sort of term that yeah. um, Russian capitalists are kind of referred to. But it's almost like to sort of make make this kind of distinction between capitalists in Russia and capitalists in the UK. Um, capitalists in the United Kingdom are democratic and civilised, but, you know, Russian oligarchs, they're like, they're, they're corrupt, you know, we have to take action against them. And now cap- capitalist government, we see capitalist governments actually taking action to them, getting to the point of seizing their property. And we've been told for mm. decades um, that, you know, we, we you cannot ever seize property of the rich, like, you know... Uh, it's, it was considered kind of taboo, and now you see all the the kind of mar- this kind of masked off moment for the government that you know the governments are actually capable of doing it. There just has to be, I guess, a political kind of will. Yeah, and just going back um, to you know refugee policy, and um, you know, I mean, these imperialist war machines of nations like you know, we've got to remember, United States and Australia have all greatly contributed to the number of refugees across the globe, and. You know, Australia's current refugee policy represents this, you know, represents the, the incarnation of the, the white Australia policy, which dates back, what, 100, well, back to 1901. And it was specifically designed to maintain a white British um, national character. But, yeah, um, I don't know if you wanted to talk more about, you yeah. know. Well, I think there's actually another aspect, because um, actually there's just, um, yeah, there's just, just a lot to kind of cover, like lots of different aspects to this crisis. And of course, what we're sort of talking about is, you know, it's not covered in kind of mainstream kind of media. And I think, you know, this is one example why I think you should support FreeCR Community Radio mm. because, you know, we're giving um, this kind of these kind of um, analysis that you do not see um, in the corporate media. And I guess another thing I want to comment on. And this is something that I think is going to be really important. And I think we're going to have to reflect on what our capitalist governments are doing in response to this tragedy. But what's quite clear, and this is following on from what actually we, we implied that this would happen um, last week on our program, and of course that was just as the invasion was mm. underway. But essentially what, what we're coming into is we are seeing um, right-wing governments or capitalist governments all around the world trying to use this crisis to push politics to the right. And now we are seeing all these calls for increased militarism from countries like, um, from NATO member countries like um, Germany, uh, the United Kingdom, and also um, and also France, where, where they're, they're telling their people, you know, the, the, the threat of Russia is intensifying. Putin is this e- evil magnomaniac whose, you know, will to power does not, um, can't be challenged. And, you know, this is why we have to invest like millions and billions into, into our military. And, you know, that's, that is, um, that is very dangerous. And I think all left wing people, you know, need to out, need to oppose this, um, this drive towards militarism because it, more militarism is not going to resolve, uh, this conflict. But also another issue as well that comes out of this when, when we're projecting this sort of fear of Russia kind of narrative, it actually pushes a very sort of Russian phobic kind of, uh, um, a Russian pho- uh, a, a climate of Russian phobia, which is going to be similar to the sort of type of atmosphere that uh, the Australian government is whipping up against the Chinese, especially in terms of 
this ongoing trade war and conflict with um, with China, which is which is a rising capitalist power that threatens uh, the interests of of the West in um, of the West. And now some classic examples to kind of point to in this and this where this Russian phobia is going. There was a there was a there was a um, there was a court there was a there was an Italian university that actually made a decision to ban uh, a course teaching the work of Fridor Dudoskfe, uh, the famous sort of author who wrote um, crime, um, the famous classic um, Russian author that wrote Crime and Punishment, The Idiot, uh, The Brothers Karamazov. Anyway, there was um, they backpedaled from the decision at the end, but you know there was this whole attempt to to ban him um, from being taught at universities. Uh, despite, yeah, despite the fact that, um, despite, just because of his association with Russian culture, which is, I think, just ridiculous. And then we're seeing pressure being applied on Russian opera singers to denounce the war. In fact, there was one classic example, I don't have the, the name on hand, but there was a Russian opera singer who actually did condemn um, the invasion, but she was put under pressure by the opera management, I think this was within Germany, for not sufficiently condemning Putin enough. Oh. Like, there is... And, and in fact, actually, this goes into another context. So FIFA, for example, mm. is being very quick to ban Russia from participating, etc. I mean, that's... Australian-British. Um, uh, I mean, that should be all well and good, but I mean... You know, when it comes to the United States and so on, they have not suffered any consequences for uh, for for what they've engaged in um, when they've engaged in wars. And then it's getting into this kind of ridiculous thing where, so going back to the que- the, the the question around the opera singer being pressured to speak up to condemn uh, Putin and and the Russian invasion, well, the context we actually live in, in is when it comes to Politi- and when it comes to musicians or artists or or um, or even or sports players, sports players key uh, key example, the general sort of capitalist mentality from the establishment is you don't talk about politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, you do. You're not allowed to speak up about politics. If you dare speak about up about politics, you, you are committing a grave sin. And in fact, that's um, the reality. Is for sports players, the reason for that being the case is a lot of sports players tend to be sponsored by uh, corporations, and you know, for those corporations, they do not want you know their their image to be associated with um, radical activism in, in any way. So we have this whole hypocritical moment where. You know, sports players, uh, you know, to their credit, are happily making sort of a stand against the war in um, Ukraine, and but they're not getting condemned for it by the by by the establishment. I mean, but if they were to if they were to make a stand, um, as many sports players have done, soccer players especially, if they would make a uh, make a stand in the again against what Israel is doing, Israel's occupation of Palestine, they'll hear no end of media backlash. Um, and I think you know these are things. I think these are important things. I think for left wing people to kind of reflect on as as this kind of conflict and war goes on. You know, we we actually need to oppose. Or this kind of this chauvinism, we need to oppose this media kind of hypocrisy, and yeah, we need to oppose this sort of differential kind of treatment um, on the um, in terms of uh, in terms of how people in terms of people campaigning on the issues. Yeah, and just to add to that, I mean, it is all part of a, a pattern of militarization and lack of transparency, and also the you know silencing of the oppressed. 
um, you know, Google's um, and YouTube banned. Um, they banned uh, Russians, like certain, they've removed Russian media outlets from the EU um, and the UK, I think. Um, and yeah, social media companies have, you know, they're trying to work out ways to to control, um, you know, and limit how Moscow spreads its propaganda. Um, I didn't see Google doing this with Israel. Um, in fact, when Israel killed 284 Palestinians in two weeks last year, not only did Google not ban their channels from YouTube, um, it actually allowed the IDF, um, the Israeli Defense Force, to place adverts before videos critical of what it was doing. So, you know, they signed this. Google signed a $1.2 billion project um, to sell dangerous technology to the to, to the Israeli um, army and government. And that contract was signed the same week that the Israeli military attacked Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, and they killed almost 250 people, including 60 children. So, I mean, like private companies and, you know, Google and companies like Amazon are chasing contracts with institutions like the U- the, the U.S., um, Department of Defense and, and ICE and state and local police departments. And, yeah, it, it is, um, you know, you can see where they're, um, yeah, you can see what they're trying to do there. It, it is all part of a pattern of this sort of militarization and um, move towards authoritarianism. All right. Well, um, we're getting ready to, um, we'll just um, wrap up our discussion kind of here. Um, but yeah, hope listeners, um, enjoyed our kind of reflections on some of the different sort of angles that are coming, um, that are coming out of this conflict. And I'll just go play, um, a quick announcement and then we'll go on to our first live interview for the program. You are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. We jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we got the hand. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio, and on the line, we're very happy to have David Linden. Um, David Linden is an AU member and a long-time um, school teacher, and, I, and we're having him on our program today as a rank-and-file kind of activist to have a bit of a discussion about this kind of proposed kind of agreement that is being put forward by the Australian Education Union. And currently, from my understanding right now, uh, for all AU members, um, this agreement is currently being put to a vote where members are advised to vote either yes or no to the agreement. So, yeah, good morning, um, David. Hi, Jacob. How are you going? Yeah, I'm good. Um, so, I, I want to... I guess the first kind of question I want to kind of start is... When this agreement was kind of put, um, was first kind of announced, um, 
the media kind of went in sort of a bit of an overdrive and kind of announced this, you know, kind of painted this as a victory for teachers. In fact, I even remember the education minister being quoted by saying, you know, if this agreement, you know, if it all gets finalised, etc., uh, it, this will make uh, Victoria the leading, um, the leading place in, um, the leading state in education, as um, as a lot of Victoria, uh, as a lot of Victorian state ministers like to hype up their their our education system. But yeah, what is the actual kind of reality and your kind of analysis of as you know as a left wing teacher and an activist on what you know, what is the actual reality of this agreement that's being proposed by the um, AU um, um, leadership? Um. Well, firstly, I think uh, there was some recent data come, came out that showed that Victoria was the lowest funded for education in Australia. So I'm, I'm not sure how how we can be made a leader with with this deal. Um, the I think the thing that is a real sticking point uh, uh, with the deal um, for teachers has been there's probably two things the first thing is um the biggest uh issue facing facing teachers and 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 es has been workload um and there's been a lot made of a reduction in workload that is up to 90 minutes um the problem that we've got with with the reduction in in that workload, is that rather than being written into the agreement, it's um, it's part of what's called the deed, which sits side by side with the agreement. Now, the problem with the deed, and as you can hear, Jacob, this stuff it's really complicated, and I think um, that's part of the problem as well. People don't understand it, and people don't necessarily trust uh, that that the AEU or the government will come through with with what they've said, but. Um, the problem with with the reduction in face to face time being uh, on a deed is that it, it's not really enforceable. It's not part of the agreement. So if there is a problem, uh, we can't go to fair work. We'd have to go to the courts, and going to the courts would mean, uh, you know, interminable sort of delays. Hmm. Um, Chloe. Uh, yeah. Thanks, um, David, for that explanation. Um, I guess. Uh, why will it be important for members of the the AEU to vote no to the proposed agreement? Um, thanks, Chloe. Look, I think if we need to restart the campaign, um, as I said, I, uh, the, the issues regarding the deed and the face to face time, the the pay rise that's included. Although most teachers, uh, the the pay is not the main thing. Um, but it is still an issue. Uh, the pay rise is seen as being under inflation. It's it's meant to be two percent plus a one percent bonus, uh, and it, it's really complicated. Like it's one percent for the first six months, then it's another one percent, and then the one percent that's supposed to be a bonus uh, doesn't actually go on to like your substantive pay so the next time there's an agreement so you can see it's a really complex and and difficult to understand um sort of deal and with all those uh the complexity to it um teachers are well used to to the caveats that come Mm. with all of the 
with every deal that we get, with the last EBA as well. I think it's really worth people understanding and knowing that the, the AEU represents teachers, but it also represents the principals who are representatives of uh, the department. So you've got two compete, a union working basically for two competing interests um, at the same time. Um, and as you can imagine, if you've got, you know, a union working for for the people who are the staff and for the people who are the bosses, you kind of it, it's a compromised position from the start. Hmm. And getting, I guess, into some of the, I want to kind of get into some of the kind of these lines, like some of the kind of issues that um, are affecting kind of teachers kind of today. And I guess, what are some like what are some of the alternative kind of measures and and things that the teacher and that teachers and the union need to be fighting for today, because you know, as a left wing kind of teacher kind of activist, you are, you know, you're arguing to other left wing, um, other left wing teachers and other members of the AU. You're trying to put the, the political argument out there that you know we shouldn't accept this deal. We need we need better. But I guess, what is your sort of vision as a teacher of what that better? Um, looks like, like in t- especially in terms of the measures that teachers need to be fight and the union need to be fighting for today. Yeah, look, I think um, that that's a great question, and it's <laughs> how long have we got? But um, essentially, from a um, if I zoom out uh, for a while, what what I've seen in my teaching is, and I've worked in lots of different schools, I've worked in different countries. Um, and, you know, a range of schools through Victoria. Um, There's a real difference between the quality of education that is delivered in the public system to people who live in uh, high high socioeconomic areas and low socioeconomic areas. Um, In in the new outer suburbs, uh, the schools are often really big, uh, due to cost-saving measures, you know, it's easier to build one one big school than to build five five smaller ones. Um, that that has issues with the school having an identity. It has issues, especially through COVID, with you know, if you've got two and a half thousand kids running around in the playground, um, you know, the, those sort of issue, those sort of um, you know, uh, transmissibility issues become a really a, a big deal. Um, the structural kind of elements of sexism and racism that exist uh, are much clearer uh, in those those areas um, that don't have a higher socioeconomic background, um, as well as the the sort of um, what am I trying to say? The way that capitalism uh, runs our our whole our whole society is something that is really clearly borne out in my experience uh, in those larger schools, which are not really often um, destination schools for teaching staff and management. Um, so often you'll have inexperienced leaders inexperienced teachers moving into a school for a short amount of time until they can leave, get some, well, get some experience, leave and move to a school somewhere else, which results 
in a lower standard of education uh, for the kids who are there. And, and I think that's part of sort of this uh, cycle of, of disadvantage that exists. Hmm. So e- efforts to redress all of that from a macro kind of uh, view um, is something that's really required. And I guess um, maybe we can kind of conclude, I guess, this interview. Um, do you guys have any kind of final comments you'd like to make, um, especially to any teachers that might be listening to this program um, now? Yeah, look, I think um, the, the, the thing about the no vote is it gives us a chance to restart the campaign. Um, the, the measures that have been taken so far to... to to push the government towards... Well, first it was just to push the government towards coming to the table because the our old deal, deal expired and there was no no negotiations had started from government. So after what um, the efforts that teachers had gone through, uh, had, had put in um, through the whole COVID period, it, it was a bit of an insult and a bit of a slap in the face, I think. Um, so if we can restart the campaign... Um, we've got a, 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 a lot of goodwill built up. We've got uh, a, a lot more um, campaign strategies that are still in the toolkit that we're able to use. Um, and I've forgotten the last thing I was going to say. Um, so, oh, yeah, that was it. Uh, but so far, the... I've heard back from three of the ratificative ratification meetings um, and the, the vote has been close at all of them um, and it's still it, it's still on a nice edge um, whether whether the no vote will get up or not so yeah all right well thank you very much um, um, David and I think you know um, I'm pretty sure voting is Sort of due. Um, just a quick question. Um, voting is sort of due to end next week, as far as I understand. Yeah, the meetings are all all bunched up in this in this period of time. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. So um, definitely um, for any sort of teachers um, kind of listening, you know, we definitely kind of support. Um, you know, David Linden sort of, you know, left-wing kind of teachers and rank-and-file kind of teachers um, rising to vote no and uh, campaigning for kind of a better deal. So definitely. Um, yeah, you're listening to kind of Green Left Radio and I'd like to thank David for being on our program. Thanks. Thanks, Jacob and Chloe. Bye-bye. Thanks, David. Thank you. All right. So you're just, um, we're just talking, I'm um, speaking to David Linden, who is an AU member, um, Australian Education Union member and also a long-time teacher. We're having a bit of an important discussion about, you know, his criticisms of the proposed deal by the AU and why all teacher activists should um, be voting no um, um, to the agreement. So, yeah, um, you're listening to Green Left Radio. Um, I'll, st- I'll just go play a quick, um, a quick announcement. Um, on You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. Get your radical summer attire sorted. New stock of 3CR Radical Radio tees has just landed, featuring the iconic antenna design by artist Emily Floyd. As well as our basic black, we have a range of great pastel and primary colours in a variety of sizes. And for those radical little people, we have a short run of kids' tees available too. 
For just $30 for adults or $20 for kids, you can get yourself a local, ethically manufactured and printed tee that supports Radical Community Radio. We can send one out in the post. And there's Click and Collect from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or if you're fully vaxxed, you can drop in and browse our T-shirt rack during business hours. To purchase online, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. All right, you are listening to Green Left Radio. And now it is, well, it's going to be hitting 8 o'clock in 30 minutes, but we'll go start, we'll get started on it. It is probably time for the Green Left kind of activist calendar. And there are kind of, there are a number of important kind of events kind of coming up. Now, the first event I want to kind of highlight is um, there's going to be a rally, Free um, free the Refugees, um, happening at 2 p.m. at the State Library on Swanson Street in the in the city. Um, so, yeah, that's been organised by Refugee Action Collective. On Sunday, March the 6th, there's going to be a dinner, Western Sahara's um, National Day on, in um, 2022 at 5 p.m. at the Mouldy Fig at 122 122 Ligon Street uh, at Brunswick East. And then on Tuesday, March the 8th, there's going to be a rally in March, um, International Women's Day at 5.30 p.m. at the Treasury Building on Spring Street in the city. And then on on Thursday, on then... And then the next event I want to highlight, on Saturday, March the 12th, there's going to be an important anti-war protest being organised by a coalition of anti-war groups. Um, it is titled Peace in Ukraine, um, Russia Out, NATO Out, and it's going to be happening at 12pm at the State Library, March the 12th. And so, yeah, definitely, I think we want to make that um, rally as kind of as big as possible. In fact, we we'll probably will have... Um, Probably we'll probably have an interview next Friday. We'll absolutely probably have an interview with someone with one of the organisers of, of that rally that's going to be happening. And and then on Tuesday, March the fifteenth, um, there's going to be Info Night, fighting for climate and environmental justice in 2022 at 6 p.m. at the Trades Hall. There's going to be a book launch Wednesday, the 6- March the sixteenth, the party by Stuart um, Stuart McIntyre. Um, which is going to be happening at 5.30pm p- at the Trades Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. And then on um, Saturday, March the 19th, there's going to be a rally, Fight for Public Health and Workplace Safety at um, on, on at 12 noon at the State Library. And then on Sunday, um, April the 10th, um, there's going to be a rally, Palm Sunday, Walk for Justice for Refugees. Um, so, yeah, those are some of the different um, kind of political events that are going to be happening. And... And I'll, maybe we'll just go, I'll end, I'll just go play um, a quick announcement and we'll go on to the next part of the program. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. You know, there's people, like you said, have been on casual for seven years. Well, it's supposed to be casual employment. People want full-time jobs. They don't want to be sitting there casual, not knowing they're going to get any any days, any leave or what's, whatsoever. Especially, you look at all the casuals in the, our industry at the moment, they're sitting home. You know, people want full-time employment, and they, sh- they should be entitled to That's full-time right. employment. And look at all the people who were used and abused as casuals in the aged care sector and all the problems that are facing people now and all the deaths that are following. And the meatworks, a lot of that's casuals, labour hire, you know, you've got blokes travelling around, you know. We want full-time positions, and, you know, that's 
and people want it. We want to be full-time employed. You want to have your Christmas holidays. You want to have time with your family. But when you're a casual, you get none of that. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. For the rest of the program, I thought, um, given our, given the importance of the whole, of covering the, 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 the Russian, um, Ukraine kind of conflict, we're going to play the second speech that from the public forum that um, took place yesterday behind Russia's war on Ukraine. And this speech is going to be by Sam Rainwright, who was on our program last Friday. Um, basically, yeah, he's a national co-convener of Social Alliance. And yeah, basically, he was one of the speakers at this public forum behind Russia's war um, attack on Ukraine, yeah, which took place on Thursday, March the 3rd, March the 3rd, and was organised by Green Left. All right, hope listeners enjoy. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Everyone who joined us during uh, William's talk. Um, we're going to hand over now to Sam Wainwright. As I mentioned before, Sam is one of the national co-conveners of Socialist Alliance, and Sam will uh, have 20 minutes to speak to us. So thanks, Sam. Over to you. Thanks. Uh, thanks very much, Susan. Thanks to William and thanks to everyone who's uh, watching this evening. All right. Well, look, I won't pretend to be a particular expert on Ukrainian or Russian history, politics and economics. I've taken it, followed it more closely than most probably do, uh, partly because of a family connection. My mum-in-law is from Odessa uh, in southwest Ukraine. Um but I can say that I got one thing wrong. I was certain up until the very eve of the invasion that Putin would not attempt a full-fledged invasion or occupation of Ukraine. That just seemed to me to be such um, an implausibly massive overreach that it wouldn't happen and put it down to US hype. So clearly I got that wrong. But one thing we are are all going to have to become experts on is the consequences, the political consequences, the real world consequences for any of us uh, fighting to make a better world, a more just and peaceful world. Uh, and the consequences are mostly negative. Now, let's start with at first principles. The Russian invasion of Ukraine vi violates international law. It tramples over the rights of the Ukrainian people to democratic self-determination. As such, the Ukrainian people have a right to resist the invasion. That said, the war can only be a catastrophe for people in both countries. Now, in examining the background of this war, I want to do it by picking up four factors that are important for understanding the context of the invasion so that we don't just ascribe it to you know, Putin's madness or megalomania. Um, things that explain it, put in context, without tempering the fact that we have to condemn the invasion for what it is. Now, the first of those is Western hypocrisy and double standards. Now, I'm sure you've all got your own list of examples of those things. I'll just run, a sh run through one that I brainstormed on, on, on the back of an envelope this afternoon. So we witness such grotesque spectacles as the fact that the very same countries that are now welcoming 
uh, refugees fleeing from Ukraine, like Holland and Hungary, were only last year literally beating and tear gassing refugees from Syria and Afghanistan trying to flee over the same borders. And more recently, we've seen uh, uh, students from uh, from Africa uh, in Ukraine being denied um, be, being denied asylum acro- across the borders into in, into Poland and Hungary as well. Australia, US and the UK, well, what have we got in common? The illegal invasion of Iraq that cost perhaps one million lives, utterly shattered Iraqi society and created the basis for the emergence of the Islamic, Islamic State. A whole string of US interventions um, across the globe, including invasions, destabilisation, coup-mongering, uh, sanctions and many more. There's another hypocrisy too. That is that Western banks have been very happy to accept the billions of dollars from Russian oligarchs um, over the last two decades. Even after the devastating war in Chechnya, in which 80,000 civilians were killed, it didn't cause a ripple. And we should remember that when Russian oligarchs take their ill-gotten fortunes and invest them in Swiss, British and US banks, instead of investing them back in Russia, they're extracting wealth from Russian workers, keeping Russia relatively poor, a relatively poor and undeveloped country, and actually making the West richer. Um, it's no wonder that Tory politicians, up until a week ago, were accepting donations from these very Russian oligarchs. The economic order in which we live is based upon the division between the wealthy industrialised world, with about 50% of the world's population, that suck wealth out of the poor, poorer countries of the former colonial world, or global south. Um, and as we know, that world order is enforced with violence, every single day of the week. So we're right to be furious with the sanctimonious hypocrisy of Western leaders. They have no problem with violence and, and destruction in U- Ukraine. What they are concerned about is their own economic and strategic interests. But none of that makes the Russian invasion right. Um, and that's, that, that, that's a point we have to, you know, we can't, we can't, we can't dodge that reality. Um, the second one is, you, the second issue I want to briefly canvas is the nature of Ukrainian politics and society, because that's had a fair bit of airing in left-wing circles as well. Now, of course, Ukraine has a pro-capitalist government, but so does Russia and Australia. Now, it's certainly true that right-wing nationalism is a problem in Ukraine, uh, and democratic space is compromised in Ukraine um, compared to Australia. Uh, While the genuinely sort of far-right or fascist political parties only achieve about 2% of the vote in the election, uh, well, certainly in the last elections, uh, they do have armed militias, which gives them far more weight uh, in Ukrainian politics than they should have. There's also been the anti-communism laws, which basically ban, you know, even the words so- socialism or communism uh, being in um, p- political political organisation names, you know, ripping down of Soviet era stash- statues, the restoration and glorification of, of Nazi collaborators, uh, particularly in the West of the country. However, it's wrong to j- jump ahead like Putin does, and some left-wingers do, and to say that Nazi or fascist ideas are dominant or predominant uh, in Ukraine today. Uh, Zelensky, who won the presidential elections in 2019, is relatively moderate by Ukrainian standards, and he actually defeated the more right-wing nationalist incumbent, Poroshenko, who emerged out of the uh, Euromaidan uh, movement. At the same time, more right-wing nationalist forces control the parliament and they've blocked some of Zelensky's more progressive measures uh, and are also fiercely opposed to any kind of settlement compromise in the Donbass, which they uh, consider as a betrayal. The other important thing that's worth noting is that Zelensky actually won an overwhelming majority 
in the Russian-speaking areas of the country in 2019. And Poroshenko only won uh, significant majority in the very far west of the country. So that underlies the fact that we have a slightly ludicrous situation in which Putin claims uh, claim, claims to be invading Ukraine to liberate Russian speakers from the president that they voted for. Uh, the only thing more ludicrous, in actual fact, is the idea that Putin, who bases his own political project on socially conservative right-wing authoritarianism, is any sort of person to carry out a denazification process in Ukraine or anywhere. Now, there is a serious problem with right-wing nationalism in Ukraine, but the one thing that will not solve it is a deeply unpopular Russian invasion. Uh, I think we can safely say that will only make things worse. The third factor is Russia as a counterweight to the United States in world affairs. Now, Russia functions as a political and military counterweight to the US influence, albeit not on the scale that the former Soviet Union did. And sometimes this is a good thing. For anyone who detests the trail of wars and destruction left by the US and its vassal states across the world, seeing the US getting a black eye every now and then can be appealing. And for left-wing governments in Latin America being crushed by illegal US sanction regimes and the constant threat of invasion, Russian trade and military assistance is a lifeline. But once again, we have to remind ourselves that our enemy's enemy is not our friend. Uh, and the Ukrainian people's right to self-determination can't be traded off um, for Russia's supposed place in the world. Fourth is this question of NATO expansionism, which w William's already uh, looked at in some detail. So I'll try to be brief on this one. Now, as he said, the West clearly contradicted promises made in 1991 that the um, by expanding right up to, to Russia's borders. And I think even if Russia had a liberal capitalist democracy, the Russian establishment and the Russian people would still rightly perceive this as a threat. The US, are, the US and NATO are trying to hem Russia in, both militarily, but just as important economically. Uh, this is an extremely hostile posture and it has helped push the situation towards war. That was, and that was the main line that us left-wingers were pushing before war broke out, because our, our, our primary job is to put the spotlight on the war, warmongers in our parliaments. Um, but that balance has, has, has clearly changed with, with, with the invasion. It's Putin that has chosen war at this time and place. And there's no way that you could argue that, the, that there's an immediate threat to civilian lives in Russia that was so dire that it justified the death and destruction being unleashed in Ukraine as some kind of defensive measure. And contradictorily, of course, the invasion of Ukraine will actually boost the appeal of NATO in neighbouring countries and convince many people in them that they need to remain allied with the US military strategy, not just in Europe, but across the world. In, in fact, I would say that the invasion of Ukraine is the biggest propaganda gift to the US and NATO that you could possibly imagine. Uh, how much Putin you know, was aware of that, I don't know. Well, it's often said that politics is concentrated economics and that war is an extension of economics. So what are the economic drivers behind this conflict? And I say that understanding that, uh, you know, political and military conflict doesn't, isn't just a mechanical expression of, of economic tensions uh, or economic drivers, but it has that lying behind it. And to answer that question, we need to look at the nature of the Russian economy uh, and ask what is the Putin pro project and why is it in conflict with the West? So let's start with where Russia fits into the global economy. And that means starting with the restoration of capitalism in Russia. While the Soviet Union was never as high tech and as industrialized as the West, it did succeed in, in industrializing. 
And this achievement was significantly destroyed with the restoration of capitalism. Opened up to competition, branches of industry that were not as efficient as US, West European or Japanese multinationals were either destroyed or absorbed by these competitors. The industrial output of the former Soviet Union collapsed in just a few years to be about that of Belgium, which is just staggering. Those assets whose value were not completely destroyed and could turn a profit were privatised, hoovered up by opportunist scumbags, basically, often former senior Soviet bureaucrats um, who, who turned themselves into the owners of these new capitalist um, conglomerates. This process of deindustrialization turned Russia and the other former Soviet republics into countries whose economies made them members of the so-called semi-periphery. Economies whose industrialization is similar to Brazil, Turkey, South Africa or China. So wealthier and more industrialized than most countries of the so-called global south, but still nowhere near the really super high tech wealthy countries of Western Europe, North America, Japan and Australia. And labour productivity gives a, a, a good explainer. So labour productivity, you measure what's the value of goods or services that a worker produces in an hour, for instance. Now, a, a German or a Japanese uh, or a US worker produces four, four times as much value in goods and services in an hour than a worker does in Russia because the worker in those high-tech countries is, is plugged into a whole lot of technology. There's all this capital embedded in the work that they do and surrounding them. Now, despite that, the Russian oligarchs in the early 1990s were still hoping to be welcomed into the Western capital, capitalist club as equals, as equal competitors, that is to say, who would get their slice of the pie. In fact, in the early 1990s, Russian leaders seriously suggested the possibility that Russia itself might join NATO, but that door was shut in their face. Meanwhile, the process of privatisation, deindustrialization, and the IMF shock therapy absolutely smashed Russian living standards. GDP fell by 45%. Mortality increased by 50%. Male life expectancy declined significantly. Government revenue declined by 50%. Crime and crime went through the roof. And inevitably, this produced a political backlash in Russia. And that brings us to the Putin question, Putin's economic and political project which is to halt Russia's decline. Now, benefiting from high oil, oil prices, Putin paid off Russia's debt and doubled wages. He reasserted the supremacy of the state and he jailed oligarchs who were, who were not prepared to play by the new Team Russia rules. Putin restored a sense of national pride and that's why his, favorite, his approval ratings have consistently been, up till now anyway, between 60 and 80%, which are figures that most Western leaders could only dream of. Whether that will endure, of course, remains another thing. But in reasserting Russia's place in the world, we have to be clear that this economic project is a thoroughly capitalist one. When commentators say that Putin is nostalgic for the Soviet Union, let's be clear, he is nostalgic for a strong centralised state, not for socialism in any form. And the economic project has meant defining the former Soviet republics and other adjoining countries as, as the rightful sphere of, for Russian capitalists to grow their base and to grow the Eurasian Union, which is, in a sort of sense, Russia's alternative to the European Union. This economic strategy has been accompanied by, by a military strategy, of course, as they all are, always are, just like the US does through NATO, AUKUS or the Quad. Now, Russia doesn't have the economic or military power to project invasions all the way across the world, like the US did in Iraq. 
but it does seek to push out of its encirclement by the US and its allies and to expand its zone of influence and to stop more former Soviet states falling into the US's economic and military framework. And in doing so, it's prepared to meddle in the affairs of its neighbours. And sometimes for terrible effect. And so examples are propping up authoritarian pro-Russian governments in former Soviet republics like Belarus and Kazakhstan, uh, hiving off bits of Georgia when it can uh, because of the fact that Georgia has gone into the, in, in, into the Western orbit, um, or propping up the Assad dictatorship in Syria. That's why for Putin, you, Ukraine cannot be pulled into NATO or the EU. It belongs to Russia, and hence the insistence, uh, the, the, the crazy insistence that the Ukraine, Ukrainian nation doesn't even exist. Obviously, U.S. capitalism doesn't accept this. Uh, from the point of view of the U.S. capitalists, the U.S. is the only capitalist power that is allowed to have zones of influence, <laughs> and no one else can. Um, now, while we must absolutely reject the U.S. attempts at aggressively encircling and containing China and Russia, uh, this is warmongering, make no doubt about it. We shouldn't have any, any particular sympathy for the Putin project either. You know, Russia may not be an imperialist power in the way that we understand Russia's place in the world economy, but Putin certainly has imperial ambitions for Russian capitalism, expansionist ambitions for imperialist capitalism. And there's nothing, there's nothing remotely progressive or socialist or anti-imperialist about this in and of itself. Now, I want to briefly recap the negative consequences of Russia's invasion beyond the immediate lo um, loss of life and destruction. So one, it will boost the appeal of NATO in neighbouring countries and justify militarism. In fact, Germany, uh, the German parliament has just announced that it's going to nearly double its military expenditure. And that, I believe, was with the support of the SPD and Greens. Two, it makes it easier for the US and its allies to hypocritically pose as defenders of international law while they continue to unleash violence on parts of the world outside the gaze of Western media. Three, it will actually fuel far-right-wing nationalism everywhere. Western Europe, Eastern Europe, Ukraine, Russia. Just imagine being a socialist in an Eastern European country right now, doing the right thing, holding the line and arguing against nationalism, NATO, increased military spending and Russophobia. Four, Putin has given the biggest propaganda gift to US imperialism imaginable, as I've mentioned before. Um, and this is going to make it hard for the left for some time. Five, any hope Russia's capitalists had of growing their share of the pie may be blocked by sanctions, which will actually affect Russian workers the most, uh, potentially smashing their living standards without necessarily weakening Putin's grip on power. And the sanctions imposed on Iraq in 1991 are a bit of a pointer. Uh, people will remember that those sanctions imposed by the United States caused, caused the death of 200,000 children, and yet Iraqi people were just so exhausted surviving to, to organise a protest movement against, against the dictatorship. Okay. All this is quite grim, but we have to face reality in, in the face um, in order to chart a way forward. I think one of the really inspiring things is the Russian peace movement. It's, it's inspiring breadth and spread. Um, it's really important for our side. I can't stress this enough. It's really important for the cause of peace and justice in the world that, that, it's, that the Russian people call Putin to account on their own terms. Because consider two non-mutually exclusive and rather depressing alternatives. One could be that Ukraine ends up being split into two with a right-wing nationalist pro-NATO controlled rump, perhaps with Zelensky squeezed out because he's not right-wing enough in the West, and a Kremlin controlled puppet regime in the East and South of the country. Two, 
and these things aren't mutually exclusive, a broken and broke Russia getting sucked back into a triumphalist Western imperialist hegemony ruled by pro-Western comprador oligarchs prepared to play a subordinate role to Berlin, Washington and London, while the US has a free hand to continue its wars everywhere else in the world. They are real possibilities. In Australia, our job is to show our solidarity to Ukraine without wavering from our opposition to the militarism of our own rulers. I think that means campaigning to end Australia's participation in AUKUS, the Quad and ANZUS, and ending the $100 billion submarine deal. We will be up against a real security propaganda scare campaign. Uh, we already have the coalition uh, trying to beat the, the khaki election drum in this country. So it's, 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 it might be a hard row to hoe at first, but that's just what we have to do. Um, it was, you know, it was harder in the midst of the Cold War. So that's just what people who are serious about trying to create a better world have to do. At a time when climate change poses the greatest existential threat to our species has ever known, the last thing humanity needs is for precious time, resources and lives to be squandered to a war. Uh, we need to seek to understand and act. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. And... Uh... Okay, you're... Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and the Nara people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and you're just listening to a recording of a talk by Sam Raidwhite, um, which was part of the public forum behind Russia's attack on Ukraine. Anyway, we're getting to, I guess, to the to the kind of end of the program, but I guess there were a number of kind of things we wanted to reflect on and um, sort of um, make um, bring your attention to. But probably one of the most um, exciting, sort of expiring, sort of examples that has come out of this whole you know, the whole war in on Ukraine by um, by Russia is has been the actions and the bravery of anti-war protesters in Russia. So there has actually been massive protests in Russia against um, against the war. And of course, this is in a climate that is actually more intense and more much more difficult to oppose the war. Um, you know, in Russia, Russia has is has you know we can't sugarcoat it it does have a very authoritarian government mm. and essentially you know protesters have been imprisoned and detained in response to protesting against the war um they've been called an enemy of the state and you know accused of undermining russia's security and sovereignty like so you know it's it's kind of very sort of um brave um that these um that these um that these protests are um, um are happening <laughs> And we've also we've also get, been seen um, 
We've also seen um, Russian socialists speak out against the war. In fact, there's a statement that has been printed in Green Left. It's by Socialists Against the War Coalition. And this is by socialists in, in Russia. And, of course, they've shared this manifesto, which has been translated into English for the first time and shared by the Progressive International. And, you know, they kind of start um, by saying that the Russian government has betrayed its, its um, promises of peace and st- Stability, leading the country into war and economic catastrophe. Like any war in history, this one divides us all into poles for and against. Kremlin propaganda tried to convince us that the nation is united behind the government and that it is the pathetic renegades, the pro-Western liberals and the enemy mercenaries who demand peace. This is um, an untenable lie. And, you know, they point out... Um, because they can't necessarily read out the statement, a whole statement. They, you know, they point out that tens and millions of people all over the country have expressed their horror and disgust at the actions of the Putin administration. They're people, and these are people of various sort of um, of persuasions. And of course, they argue that there are many reasons to fight against this war. And some of the demands that they're putting is that this is an unjust invasion. No threat to the Russian state exists that would warrant sending our soldiers to kill and die. They're not liberating anyone. They're not helping any popular movement. They're nothing but a regular army tearing down peaceful Ukrainian towns at the behest of a handful of millionaires who keep on, who dream of, of keeping, um, keeping their grip on Russia forever. And so, yeah, there's, um, and then, of course, um, the, they, they also acknowledge, I guess, the role of NATO. So, you know, they basically say that, you know, the Western, um, the Western, um, the Western powers offer no alternative vision for, um, for Russia. And in fact, they are just as complicit in the, in the kind of crimes. But yeah, you can read this, the full manifesto of this statement on the Green Left kind of website at greenleft.org.au. It's titled Russian Socialists um, Speak Out Against the War. But I also kind of want to bring your attention to the fact that, um, you know, on this whole conflict, Green Left is printing all, all sorts of diverse um, ranges of topic. We're, um, we're, we are printing lots of commentary on this on this war, especially from um, from some of the speakers that you might have heard of, Sam Rainwright and William Briggs. Um, we're also printing out the different sort of left wing kind of perspectives that have kind of developed in response to this um, from from Europe, from the Asia Pacific, and even including Russia. And but yeah, I think you know this is probably raises I guess the importance of supporting community radio like FreeCR, but also supporting Green Left and Green Left Radio. And yeah, you can become a supporter as low as like five dollars a month, um, and become and go onto the greenleft.org.au website forward slash support. Anyway, um, maybe Chloe might have some final words. Thank oh, everyone. Yeah, well, we send our solidarity to those brave protesters. I think six thousand people have been detained since the invasion began, and yeah, solidarity to the people of Russia and and Ukraine who didn't want this war. And thanks for listening. All right. You're listening to Green Left Radio. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1800 634 206. Arise you workers from the slumbers, arise you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions, serve all masses, arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that...